This morning's scripture, which you can find on page 8 of your bulletin, is Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, uh, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Good morning, church. It's a real pleasure to be with you all today. Um, for our visitors, thank you for coming and joining us uh, for a very hard passage to go through. Uh, for those of you who are visiting who don't know me, I'm Reverend Irvid. A lot of you know me, though. Um, I'm a hospice chaplain and a chaplain ch candidate with the National Guard here in, in town, and it's a, a real pleasure to be with you all to preach the word to you all. And 
Today's passage is definitely one of the more spicier passages in the Bible. Um, usually our mental image that we have of Jesus, it's of a, a precious lamb, a gentle lamb, a mother hen cooing over her baby chicks, a healer of the sick, and a friend of sinners, which are all true biblical images of, of Jesus. But we modern-day Christians, we tend to gloss over the harder parts about who Jesus is, of his character. Uh, this passage, it really shows that rougher, spicier side of Jesus. And that challenges us. That challenges our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs about who Jesus is. And likewise, here in this passage, we see that Jesus offended the scribes and the Pharisees because of one word. And if you're also feeling offended by this passage, it's probably because of that same word. I want to do a quick mental exercise with everyone. We're going to do some word association. I'm going to say, that, say one word, and you're going to hold on to that first thought or feeling that you have. And I'm going to have everyone close their eyes, and we're going to do this word exercise. So let's close our eyes. All right. That word is tradition. Tradition. You open your eyes now. So I was trying to read some of your faces. Some faces were neutral. Some were kind of grimaced, like, ooh, tradition. Some maybe of you had positive feelings about tradition. Um, depending on your family background, your life story, you either have good feelings or bad feelings about that word tradition. Uh, if you have good feelings about that word tradition, good for you, but you're not off the hook for the sermon. If you have bad feelings about that word, I get that. You know, you have bad history with family traditions or traditions in the church or your culture or something. Um, when I think of the word tradition, I'm reminded of the musical The Fiddler on the Roof. If you've seen it, the very first song is called Tradition. The main character, Tevya, uh, he is the patriarch of his family. And during the song, he narrates us, gives us the context for his community, for, for his community of Jews. Uh, he tells us, and I'm not going to try to do the Russian Jewish accent, but he tells us this. We have traditions for everything, how to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's tradition, because it's tradition. And here in this passage, we see Jesus having a conflict with the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's also having a conflict with his own disciples. And so going back to Mark chapter 2 and 3, we see that the Pharisees already had encountered Jesus and had conflict with Jesus here, uh, especially in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees go to the Herodians, or a political group, and they plot to kill Jesus. And that's already early on in the Gospel of Mark. Today's passage, we see here a group of scribes and Pharisees coming all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee to challenge Jesus, to try to trap him, giving a false teaching. And so the scribes, they are experts in the Jewish law. They served in the judicial procedures and enforce the Jewish law and customs. Uh, mostly everyone is familiar with the word Pharisee, and we don't have positive connotations about that word. Uh, 
but usually we don't know the full context of who the Pharisees are. We do know that they are a religious group within Judaism. Uh, in the first century, Josephus, he was a Roman Jewish scholar, and he lived after Jesus was born, but within the first century, and he wrote extensive histories about the Jewish people. And he indicated in, indicated in his historical writings that the Pharisees had the backing of the common people, that is, the middle class and the lower class people. And so for our context, we can think of that they are the highly religious people who the middle and lower class people looked up to. So today, I have three points for us to go through in this passage. And in the bigger context of the Bible, it's all important for our worship of God. And so our three points, old school twisting, new school twisting, and our last point, how to read scripture properly. And so all of this, this passage is bigger, uh, it's important to the bigger passage, uh, bigger picture, because if we do not rightly know God, we cannot rightly worship God. Now, I'm going to say that again, because that's important. If we do not rightly know God, we cannot rightly worship God. And Leviticus chapter 10 illustrates that point very clearly, very well. Uh, Aaron and his sons, they were ordained to be priests for all of Israel, and they were to be the priests of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And two of his sons, they decided to get their incense burners, and they went to the tabernacle and presented to the altar. And it tells us in the Bible that they presented unauthorized fire. That is, if you're reading your ESV. In the Hebrew, it literally translates to strange fire. And so they offered this unauthorized strange fire, and once they did that, God instantly struck them dead. And so traditions aren't bad in of themselves, but here Jesus, he calls into question certain traditions that we have, certain traditions that the Pharisees had, because their traditions twisted the scripture. For us today, Jesus, he is going to be challenging some of our traditions that we have, because we can also be potentially twisting scripture. And when we do twist scripture, it gets in the way of the commands and truth of God. And so our first point, old school twisting. Here, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they go up to Galilee and they are seeing Jesus and the disciples, how they are going about their day. And they see them washing their hands, uh, not washing their hands before eating. And they point this out. And so while it is, it's good for us today to wash our hands before we eat so we don't have dirt under our nails and all that, um, what it, the passage is referring to is the ritual washing of hands. And so the Jewish people, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, there's a lot of rituals, especially for washing things. This particular ritual involved pouring water on your fingertips, letting the water drip down to your wrist, and you would rub your hands together with your fist and then your hands would be ceremonially clean and you would be able to eat. And throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, there are a lot of washing rituals that God command the Old, uh, Old Testament community, the Jewish people, to follow. However, these particular rituals that are described in our passage today, those were expansions of those uh, written rituals, the written, the written law that God gave us. 
it goes beyond what God is prescribing. And Jesus here in the passage, he calls it the traditions of the elders. And this expansion of the law that the Jewish people had that was originally unwritten. So it was an oral law in addition to the written law. It was finally written down and was called the Mishnah and then the Gemara. And later on, it was compiled together into the Talmud. If you're familiar with modern-day Judaism, you know that they read the Talmud in addition to the Torah. And these writings included the oral law. It also included notes written by scribes and rabbis, commentaries on the Bible, and rabbinical discussions. But it's important to, to notice that Jesus here, he calls this the traditions of the elders as opposed to traditions of the patriarchs. And what I mean by the patriarchs would be the Old Testament leaders. You have Adam, Abraham, and Moses, who God directly gave the law to, and the Old Testament law that all of Israel would follow. But the elders, the tradition of the elders, it's the rabbinical tradition. And these traditions really arose during the Babylonian exile. And that was centuries after the last Old Testament book was written. And when we look through the, these washing traditions in the beginning of our passage here, especially in verses 3 and 4, the washing of hands, washing of cups, kettles, pitchers, and couches, when you go back to the Old Testament, there's no mention of that. There's nowhere do we see any washing of those things. Those rituals that are describing is from the tradition of the elders that are extra-biblical. They're man-made additions to the commands of God. And those traditions, they started with good intentions. The rabbis, they were very serious about not transgressing God's commands. And so they added these extra laws that would act as a fence around the actual law itself. And so by not transgressing those traditions, you avoid transgressing the actual law itself. But as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so these traditions took a life of their own. They got in the way of, the, of God's intent for the law. The written law, it was meant for us to come closer to God. But these traditions became a means to their own, to their own end. And even here, uh, Jesus, he quotes Isaiah. He's calling out the Pharisees for the hypocrisy, for following these traditions that they made up that undercut the plain message of the Old Testament. They're trying to achieve an outward appearance of holiness, and they're giving lip service to God, but on the inside, it's all in vain. It's all defilement. And next, Jesus, he brings up korban. It's a Jewish word, a Hebrew word, which means to bring near in the verb form, to bring near. And korban is the noun form, which is here, it's called um, given to God. And so going back to the, the root verb, to bring near, it's a thing you bring near to God. And so because of that, korban became to be meaning uh, a sacrifice, an offering to God. And so the idea there was our sacrifices, we bring it near to God, and at the same time, we come near to God as well. And so as a result, the word, it came to be mean uh, given to God and consecrated to God. And logically, it would mean it's forbidden to anyone else. And the, Jesus, he points out the hypocrisy of the tradition because the korban contradicts the fifth commandment. God commanded us to honor our father and mother. 
But this tradition of the elders, uh, they, they saw that keeping oaths was sacred. And so it was important for them to keep their oaths. And so if someone made a pledge to tithe his wealth, it became korban. And therefore, no one was allowed to give that tithe away to anyone, even his own parents. And Jesus, he points out this contradiction and the hypocrisy of this. The Pharisees were putting more weight on this tradition instead of the actual law that God commands us to the point that it created a loophole and it allowed people to transgress the law. Jesus here, he points out that loophole that, oh, if I say that this wealth is korban, I don't have to give it to my parents. And people actually exploited that loophole. And so if your parents were in trouble or they were in their old age, if you said, oh, well, this is korban, I can't give it to you anymore, so good luck. And people would do that and dishonor their parents and not help their parents in times of need. And next, Jesus, he points out a parable about cleaning foods. And when he teaches this parable, the disciples ask him to explain the parable. And Jesus here, he says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person come out of a person or what defile him. And so when you look through the dietary laws of the Old Testament and see how that played out culturally, societally, uh, that was the biggest separation between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Gentiles, us Gentiles, we ate unclean food. And so the Jews saw the Gentiles as unclean, and so they didn't want to associate with them and make themselves unclean. But here Jesus he makes all foods clean. He's opening the road, first of all, opening the road to racial and cultural reconciliation. Uh, but more so, there's a symbolic spiritual thing happening here um, that's being shown, the symbolic spiritual nature of the dietary laws, and by extension, all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Jesus points out very clearly in verses 21 through 23, that long list of different sins, moral sins. Morality is so much more important than all the ceremonial bells and whistles. Jesus tells us that evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, those are all actions, and those are the things that defile us. And we go to Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 3 of Galatians, he tells us that the law was written and given to us to be a guardian before Jesus' arrival. The law was meant to show us that we are unclean without God. The law shows us that God, he is holy and separate from us. And the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, they were all meant to illustrate the moral laws. They are to show us that there are things that make us unclean. And by following the Old Testament laws, the Jews could become symbolically clean and holy. And so they would be able to come before God and be in his presence and worship him. However, if you try to follow all the Old Testament laws, and if you, in addition, try to follow all the pharisaical laws that were added, you would find that it would be very difficult, maybe even impossible, to follow every single thing, which is the point. The point of the law was to show us that we are unable to do these things without God. It's the law is to show us that we need a Savior. 
The whole point of the law is to point us to Jesus. Because Jesus, he was able to completely obey the law. What Jesus is telling us also here about foods is that you aren't what you eat. What you put in doesn't cause you to be evil and sinful. But your actions, what you put out, that shows what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind. That's where all the sin is at. Your actions show that and reveal that. And so here, Jesus, he's critiquing an anthropocentric religion, a man-centered religion. And what he's doing here in teaching us and challenging us, he is course-correcting us to a theocentric religion, to a God-centered religion. But doing that, a, making an anthropocentric religion, that's nothing new. That's pretty much the story of all of humanity, of all of history. And us modern people, we are prone to that, which brings us to our second point, new school twisting. And so in our present-day context, I would say there are two general types of twisting. There's modern twisting and postmodern twisting. I mean, philosophical modernism and philosophical postmodernism. And these two things are definitely very present in just not only our culture, but it's slowly creeping into the church. And first of all, for philosophical modernism, it's a school of thought which adheres to objective, rational thinking, which they are good things to do. But because of this worldview, they, the only things that are reliable and real are things that are observable and measurable. And the logical conclusion of that worldview is a rejection of the metaphysical and of the supernatural, which is a problem for us as Christians. Last week, Josh, he preached on the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a miracle that he was, Jesus was able to produce food from just five loaves and two fish. And Josh also pointed out that we modern people would be skeptical of, skeptical of that, skeptical of a miracle. And so a modernist would twist the passage of Mark 6 by just outright rejecting the supernatural aspect of the miracle. And another example of the modernist twisting of Scripture is the Jefferson Bible. So Thomas Jefferson, former president and founding father, he took all his four Gospels and he took his razor and he cut out every single instance of a miracle every mention of the supernatural, every instance of Jesus' divinity, and every instance of Jesus' resurrection. Which for us as Christians, it's obviously, obviously a problem, which is a twisting that can happen for us. And on the other hand, there's postmodernism, which is the exact opposite of modernism. Um, postmodernism is deconstructionist meaning it rejects meta-narratives, it rejects grand stories of truth, and it does this to the point of rejecting objective, measurable truth and putting more weight on subjective experience, more weight on emotions and lived experience. Uh, in my own background, in my church uh, upbringing, I was brought up in a mainline church, and I remember distinctly a sermon I heard on John 6, which is a parallel passage on the feeding of the 5,000. So the pastor, he not only completely rejected the supernatural aspect of the miracle, he inserted a revisionist, feel-good misinterpretation. In John chapter 6, we see that Andrew, he points out, oh, there's 
this young boy, he has five loaves and two fish, but that's all we have. And Jesus was able to produce much food from that. But the pastor who was preaching, he said, oh, what, what really happened was um, this boy, he had his lunch, but everyone else also secretly had their lunches. And they were so moved by the example of this boy, they all started passing out their lunches that they had secretly brought. The problem with that is that it's nowhere in any of the gospel passages that mention the feeding of the 5,000. And if that was the actual meaning of the miracles, the gospel writers would have added that detail, but they didn't. And this type of twisting, it's all done just to tear down the biblical story, to tear down the meta-narrative of the Bible, purely for the sake of tearing down. And so, ultimately, that's a way of doing theology that's meaningless and absurd. It's focused on subjectivism, emotionalism, and lived experience. And so, personal truth takes precedence over the truth of the Bible, and it completely ignores the actual text of the Bible. And you might be thinking, oh, we don't do that. We don't do either of those two things. But I would argue that, that those two types of twisting are slowly creeping into Orthodox Christianity. Um, I want to talk about some blind spots that we can potentially have for us in our situation. This is not a, a comprehensive list of blind spots, but it's a good place for us to start to reflect on and where we can look at our blind spots and figure out, okay, how we can fix it. And so the first blind spot I want to talk about is a potential for a heavy reliance on church structure or polity, which for us as Presbyterians, it might be a little controversial thing for me to say. But I will argue that there's no one specific way to organize a church, at least biblically. And so be it Baptist, Lutheran, Anglican, non-denominational, independent, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or for us as Presbyterians, there's no one correct way to organize the church. But church structure, it can potentially go sideways when we get so heavily reliant on the structure, so much so that it becomes a detriment to the gospel. For our context as Presbyterians, we are so good on following parliamentarian procedure which is a good thing. It's orderly and proper, which is what we're all about, being orderly and proper. But it could potentially get in the way of the gospel if we let that take primacy over the gospel. And a potential situation I could see playing out, I haven't seen it played out in our specific church, but I'm sure you know situations in other churches where you've heard this happen where we get so stuck on following the structure, on following procedure, that a fight breaks out, that names are hurled and uh, insults are thrown, and there's bad blood, bad blood and conflict is created, which is not good for a Christian community. The fellowship and peace of, of the church is broken. And so our, our structure should really serve the gospel and not the other way around. We shouldn't let uh, structure get in the way of the gospel. And so our second blind, blind spot is uh, something that can happen to any religion, any company, organization, or country. And the second blind spot is a cult of personality. We have lots of historical examples of this. 
of Stalin and Lenin and Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, and all many different authoritarian leaders around the world throughout all of history. And so the leader, he's propped up as infallible, as heroic, as charismatic. And this can happen in the church too. When it happens in the, in the church, so much of the church's success rests solely on the soldier, soldiers of the pastor. And I would say the most recent and largest example of this that happened in e, just in the broader evangelical church is Mars Hill Church. And if you're not familiar with Mars Hill Church, it was a multi-site church based out in Seattle with 15 locations across four states. And at its height, every week they had 12,000 regular worshipers. And if you're familiar with Mars Church, you know the senior pastor, Mark Driscoll. And he became very well known, very well respected for a time. He founded a church planning network and wrote a lot of books. But then in 2014, there was some controversy with Mark Driscoll. Some church members started coming out and saying he has very toxic leadership. And he was also uh, charged with plagiarism, plagiarism. And so all this controversy, it eventually led to his resignation. And not too long after his resignation, Mars Hill Church just fell apart. And so there's a word of caution there for us. The, the ministry of Mars Hill Church, it was great for Christianity. It blessed a lot of Christians around the world for almost two decades. But so much value was put on Mark Driscoll that he became a celebrity pastor. And so it was only a matter of time before all the power and the prestige corrupted him. As the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And going back to the title, celebrity pastor, it's an oxymoron. Our pastors, yes, they should be looked to as great leaders, as examples, and most importantly, shepherds who point us to Christ. We should put Christ on the pedestal, but instead what we do with celebrity pastors is putting the pastor on the pedestal instead of Jesus. And so the power of the pastor's personality has greater power than the preaching of the word and the gospel. In our particular situation, I don't think we've done that, but there is potential for us to fall prey to that. We did lose our senior pastor back in August, Ordinarily, a church would not have survived as long as we did. It's literally a miracle that we're still here. And it's another miracle, and it's really exciting that we did unanimously vote to call John Sweet to be our senior pastor. And I have a lot of hope and expectations for him, but I do want to caution all of us not to put all our hopes and dreams in John. We shouldn't put a lot of unrealistic expectations on John. And our last blind spot I want to talk about um, is worship experience. And this is really my personal biggest gripe about American Christianity as a whole, and it's our consumeristic approach to church. And I've been guilty of doing that myself um, early on in my Christian years. But so often I hear about people going church shopping, and a lot of times it's for superficial features like going for the phenomenal worship band, all of the latest worship songs being played, uh, plenty of programs for the whole family, a large youth group that go on uh, summer trips or mission trips, 
And worst of all, I think the worst excuse of all for church shopping is chasing that spiritual high, which I'm guilty of doing. And all of that, those things are chased after instead of the important things, the important things of sound theology, biblical teaching, a fellowship that strengthens each other's faith, and a caring pastor who defends the gospel. And so here, this is where the postmodernist values kind of creep in into the evangelical church. And so things like personal truth and emotional focus on worship, that stuff is creeping in. And as I said, I've been, been guilty of that. When I was a baby Christian in my early 20s, which is not too long ago, I grew up in the broader evangelical church. And so I went to UT. I was deeply involved with my college ministry. And there was a lot of good things that happened in my walk with the Lord. I cut my teeth on learning the gospel, on studying the Bible, on going out on campus to evangelize. And those were all good things. And I also obviously befriended other Christians in college and got exposed to different branches and denominations of evangelicalism. And there was one thing, glare, one glaring thing that I saw was going on there was this huge focus on music and worship. And I got caught up in it too, in chasing that high, the spiritual high. But I realized that chasing that emotional high from a good worship session, a good conference, a good retreat, I was confusing that with biblical spirituality. And really what I was creating, and as a whole, what we were creating was this false spirituality of feel-goodism. And so we let the power of the music have more power than the promise of the baptism. And so our last point, and also our application here, is read scripture properly. And so our, I have several points, just three points for us on how to read scripture properly, and also to avoid twisting the scriptures. First of all, read scripture how Jesus reads the scripture, which is to mean all of scripture points to Jesus. So when we, we read the scriptures, when we read the Bible, read it through a theocentric lens, not through an anthropocentric lens. And secondly, don't read scripture in a vacuum. We aren't the Lone Ranger. We are given to church for a reason. We're given Christ's body to be together, to encourage, to exhort, and to instruct, instruct each other. So read the Bible with other Christians, wrestle with the text, go through the struggle of understanding it, seek the truth, seek to understand it. Don't be afraid of the truth of the Bible. There is going to be something that will offend you. The Bible has offended all cultures it has interacted with, so it's nothing new. And so the Bible is going to challenge your traditions, challenge your thoughts, your beliefs, and your feelings. But it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's the truth. And our last point for reading the Bible properly is reading it in the light of historic Christianity. And we aren't the only Christians who have ever lived. There have been other Christians beyond our lifetime outside of our country. Our spiritual ancestors have a lot of wisdom to give us. Just because we have smartphones doesn't mean we're smarter than the people of the past. And I know I just spent this whole sermon cautioning us against tradition and blindly accepting tradition, so don't blindly follow the tradition of the church, but really seek to understand it and deeply study it and know how our spiritual ancestors read and understood the Bible. And so deeply understand and study the traditions of the church 
And when you understand it and compare it with the Bible, if it is biblical, if it is faithful to the gospel, then we obviously keep it. But just like how the reformers in the 1500s, they were throwing out things that were unbiblical. We have to do the same thing. If there's something unbiblical, then obviously we have to get it out. We have to be faithful to the Bible and to the gospel, to seek biblical truth and to combat false teaching. And so traditions aren't bad in of themselves, but Jesus, in the passage, he calls into question certain traditions that the Pharisees had and the way that they twisted the scripture. And today he is also telling us, we probably have some traditions that we are twisting the scripture. So we need to reevaluate how we're doing church, how we're living our Christian life. Because if we do that, we get in the way of the commands and the truth of God's word. We must avoid strange fire. Because if we do not rightly know God, we cannot rightly worship God. Let us pray. Lord Father God, I thank you for this time for us to study your word. Um, it was a very difficult passage uh, and a lot of challenging things here. But Lord, um, help us to be, all be humble, especially myself. Um, let us all be open to your word and your spirit that he would challenge us to question how we are living our lives and to always keep reforming, reforming our hearts and our minds to your word and seeking to follow your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all stand and sing the doxology.